Good morning, church. Happy New Year. Ashley and Charlotte and I just got back from Minnesota last night. Our plane landed around, what, 8 o'clock, 7.30, something like that. So it was nice to have a visit with with her folks. Um, But oh my gosh, is it good to be back here. There was snow on the ground there, and it was so stinking cold. And we walked out of that airplane not needing a jacket on, and praise the Lord for that. I can't believe Advent is already over. It's already come and gone, which is kind of wild. It seems like it gets faster every year. Uh, But the good news is that we're just starting the Gospel of Matthew. We read, we we started the Gospel of Matthew for Advent, starting in chapter 1, and we read through chapter 2, verse 12. But now, we're going to return to the very beginning, the genealogy of Christ today in Matthew chapter 1. Is there a more skipped over portion of scripture than genealogies? Maybe the whole book of Leviticus, but I'd wager that when it comes to genealogies, we tend to let them kind of pass right by us without really thinking. And if we're really pious, if we are really feeling godly that day, we'll read through it real fast. But here's the thing. In Matthew's genealogy, we're presented with the whole mission of the Gospel of Matthew. Okay, so let me be clear. It's not like an extra preamble or like the table of contents before the Gospel. It's setting up the whole Gospel. It's integral to the whole thing. So it's really important that we spend a lot of time here. And in case you were worried that I was just going to skip over it, rest assured... The first Sunday of the year of 2023 will all be dedicated to the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. So before we go any deeper into this book, let's dig deep here. Amen? Let's spend time somewhere where we might be uncomfortable, where we might think, oh man, this is going to be a really boring sermon. But let's jump in and see. So would you stand with me? As we read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, the genealogy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nation, and Nation, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon." And after the deportation of Babylon, 
Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who's called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Please be seated as we pray. Lord, we pray this morning that you would open our eyes to your word, open our ears to what you have to say to us. We pray that we would have humble hearts, that we would submit to you, that we would mold our lives around your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Things get very interesting from the very start of this whole book. Take a look again at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, a guy could preach a whole message on that one verse. There's so much jammed into it. Many commentators believe, and I agree with this, that this is Matthew's title for his book. The word that's translated as genealogy here is the same word that we use for the very first book of the Bible. It's the Greek word Genesis. That little detail was spoiled for me by the book that I read to the children on Christmas Eve, if you recall, if you were actually paying attention to the children's message. But the title could be this, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. This is Matthew telling us that a new beginning has taken place. Okay, Christian mentioned during worship that Matthew is a bridge between the Old Testament and the New. And here he's given us the new beginning. His readers would have recognized this phrase from Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. The exact same phrase is in the Greek version of the Old Testament. That's why we call that book Genesis, because of that verse. This word Genesis can be translated as genealogy. And there's a genealogy that follows, so most translations go with that instead of Genesis. But Matthew knew what he was doing. Matthew knew what he was doing. This is a new Genesis. It is a new beginning. Jesus is a new creative act of God. Just like all of creation, Jesus represents all of creation. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the anointed one of Israel. He's the one that's hoped for, the one that's looked for. That's what he's called here, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Again, Matthew doesn't mince any words. He doesn't hold on to that fact until later, letting us discover whether or not Jesus is the Christ. It's in the first verse. He is also the son of David, the son of Abraham. God made a covenant with both of these men. To Abraham, he promised a whole nation, a lineage, from himself, descendants that would be a blessing to the whole world. And to David, he promised a son who would sit on the throne of Israel forever. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is shown to be 
the fulfillment of both of these things and much more. He is the Messiah. He is the King of Kings. He is the one who fulfills the promises of God. So let's take a closer look at the genealogy and see how Matthew emphasizes, it, emphasizes Jesus and the fact that he is both the son of Abraham and the son of David. So first, Jesus is the son of Abraham. The genealogy that Matthew gives us is broken up into three sections. We'll come back to verse 17, but let me read that here really quickly so we can understand the structure. All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This verse is included for our sake. He's doing something on purpose here. So there are these three big sections in the genealogy. The first section deals with the family tree in the line of Abraham, from Abraham to David. But why start with Abraham? Right? Luke has a genealogy as well. He traces Jesus all the way back to Adam. And Luke's point there is that Jesus is the new Adam. Well, Matthew's primary concern is to show how Jesus is truly the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, and how he is the greater son and fulfillment of the promises made to these men. So as we walk through this book, we'll see just how often Matthew is connecting Jesus with other people in the Old Testament and how he fulfills prophecies made in the Old Testament. That's why Matthew makes such a great bridge. Matthew helps us connect the new and the old because he's constantly bringing up the old. In fact, in the first four chapters of this gospel, we're going to see over and over, time and time again, references to the Old Testament. Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. And by going all the way back to Abraham, Matthew wants to show us how Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise made to him. God made a promise, a very specific promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you, make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, there's two parts to that promise. First, Abraham's descendants would be made into a great nation numerically. Second, his descendants would be a blessing to all the families of the nations of the earth. Jesus is the fulfillment of both of these promises. And Matthew will show us time and time again how that is the case. For instance... Chapters 1 through 4 of the Gospel of Matthew read like a retelling or a recapitulation of the history of Israel. Like Isaac, Jesus is a promised baby who is born miraculously, but even more so. Like Israel who seeks refuge in Egypt only to have a dramatic exit from that country, Joseph takes his newborn child and his wife to Egypt and brings them back. And they return to the promised land under duress. Like Israel oppressed by Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, Jesus is hunted down by the evil king Herod. Like Moses spared the oppression of Pharaoh, Jesus is spared the oppression of Herod. Like Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because 
They gave in to temptation. Jesus wanders in the desert for 40 days, being tempted by Satan and never giving in. And like Moses on Mount Sinai, bringing the law to the people of Israel, Jesus delivers a new law in the Sermon on the Mount, starting in chapter 5. That's just the first five chapters. It's all very intentional. Matthew's trying to show us that Jesus is the better Abraham. He's the better everything from the Old Testament, but specifically right here, he's the better Abraham, and he's a founder of a new and varied people of God, a people not only made up of one nation, but a people made up of every tribe and language. He shows us that fact in the genealogy itself. So as we read through that genealogy, I'm sure you mentioned the names of several women. And only in the first third of the genealogy do these women really stand out. They don't really occur anywhere else except at the very beginning of David's, which we'll get to. All of these women come from outside the covenant community of Israel. Tamar in verse 3 and Rahab in verse 5 are both Canaanite women. Ruth is a Moabite. And the first line again of the portion of David's genealogy includes an unnamed woman that we know is Bathsheba. She was the wife of a Hittite, also outside the covenant community. None of these women belonged. None of these women were part of Israel, and yet they are the only women included in Jesus' royal genealogy. That is not a coincidence. So what does that tell us? Why is Matthew using these names? Why did he specifically pick these women? He's trying to tell us a couple things. First and foremost, he's saying that the new people of God will also include Gentiles. Because even in the line of Jesus, there are Gentiles represented. God has always been the God of the whole earth, not just the God of Israel. Second, Matthew is trying to tell us that all kinds of people are going to be welcomed into the family of God, not just those who have it all together. Tamar and Rahab were prostitutes. Prostitutes in the line of Christ? That's scandalous. Now, there's a big question mark here about Ruth. There's a couple different interpretations of that book. Some understand the story of Ruth in Boaz's bedchamber as less than innocent. Although I, I don't think that's fair or the right understanding. But there's controversy nonetheless. And then there's Bathsheba. Bathsheba was taken advantage of by King David. It was a horrible situation, a horrible sin on David's part, no fault being laid at Bathsheba's feet. But once again, the birth of Solomon was wrapped up in scandal. Now these women stand out because they're the only women listed in the genealogy. But we shouldn't be confused. Every single person on this list was a sinful human being. And Matthew's just using these women to show us both of those truths. If God himself would condescend to the level of including sinful Gentile women in the line of the king of kings, how much more so does he have room for you in the kingdom of God? 
This is a new covenant community. It's a new people of God with a new founder, a better Abraham. It's founded by Jesus Christ. And it's an expansion on, an opening up of Israel. And in this people of God, which we call the church, all are welcome by faith alone. All are welcome. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past, what your personal history is, or what your race or ethnicity is. By including these women in the line of Christ, Matthew tells us that everyone is welcome into the family of God to receive forgiveness of sins. Praise the Lord. You are welcome in the family of God now. So Jesus is the greater son of Abraham. He's the father of a new community. And second, Jesus is the son of David. Matthew wants to make sure that we know Jesus is the son of Abraham. But he goes out of his way to make it clear that Jesus is the son of David. David's line is the center of the genealogy, his portion. Everything builds up to it. Look again at verse 6. Jesse, the father of David, the king. That's a very specific detail Matthew's trying to include. It's that royal title. That's the emphasis here. The whole point of the genealogy is to show that Jesus is the promised king from the line of David who would sit on the throne forever. Again, that's the whole point of the genealogy. Let me say it one more time if you're a note taker. It's to show that Jesus is the promised king from the line of David who would sit on his throne forever. That's why he includes it. It's a royal genealogy. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, we find the words of the covenant that God made with David. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The second section, right here, starting in verse 6, the second section of the genealogy is a long list of names of that royal line. And none of these names fulfill that promise. Not one of them. Not even Solomon. Some of these kings are better than others, sure. Hezekiah restored the temple and humbled himself before God. King Josiah rediscovered the law and tore down idols in the land. But none of these good kings had their kingdoms established forever. With the birth of each new king, the question was always there. Would this be the promised son of David, the one whose throne would be established forever? Would this be the one? <clears throat> and most frequently, the answer was a resounding no. It was really disappointing. There were horrible kings in this list too. Ahaz was a horrible king who abandoned the ways of his father and worshipped other gods. Manasseh was similar. He was unfaithful. We call him Nasty Massey. And then the unthinkable happened. Judah was sent into exile. Now, if you're familiar with the story of the Old Testament, you'll know that the nation of Israel was a united kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon. But that Israel was split into two because of the failures of Solomon, who left 
his first love and served other gods. So the kingdom became the northern kingdom, which was known as Israel, and the southern kingdom, known as Judah. Now, this is important. Stay with me. The northern kingdom was bad to begin with, to quote Dickens. For the one thing, the only legitimate place to worship God was in the southern kingdom. It was Jerusalem. But then Jeroboam, the first king of northern Israel, Jeroboam didn't want his people in the north to have to travel into a different kingdom, a rival kingdom, to go worship God. So he was really smart. What did he do? He set up two golden calves. That should sound really familiar. In Dan, in the very far north of the northern kingdom, and in Bethel, in the very far south of the northern kingdom. That way his people could conveniently go worship how they wanted. And they did. But there's a big problem with that. God wants to be worshipped in the way he tells us he wants to be worshipped. He can't be represented by idols. And he was only going to be worshipped in the temple. So because the northern kingdom immediately began to worship idols, they fell fast and were taken into exile well before the southern kingdom. And the unfortunate thing about that is Judah followed her sister into idol worship. It took longer. They had the temple, but they did fall. It seemed like once Judah had a king that would lead them back to the right worship of God, the next king would lead them back to idols that took them away from God. And this cycle continued over and over and over again until finally Judah was exiled out of the land with much lamentation. Which brings us to the third section of the genealogy. These are the names of the ancestors of Jesus after the exile. And so the question changed. Remember, the question was, would this next king be the one who would fulfill the promise made to David? Would his throne be established forever? But now, after the exile, the question was this. Will the promise made to David be fulfilled at all? It's a question about God's goodness, really. About God's control and sovereignty. Will the promise made to David be fulfilled at all? It's a fair question. It seemed like all hope was lost when the kingdom of Judah was sent into exile. The kingdom does end. The line of kings is broken. Remember, Matthew was tracing a royal line here. The men listed in this section could have been kings, but none of them actually were. Even when the people of Israel were allowed to return to the promised land, none of these guys became a king. The nation of Israel has never been a kingdom since the deportation of Babylon, even till today. They became a protectorate state. They paid tribute to different empires through the centuries leading up to the time of Christ. So Matthew is setting us up for something, a different question. Will the promise made to David be fulfilled in Jesus? The great expectation 
that the disciples, the apostles of Jesus have throughout the whole gospel of Matthew is that Jesus will soon reestablish the political kingdom of Israel and sit on the throne of David once more. In fact, at this very point in the story, right here at the top, with the way Matthew is setting it up for us, we're supposed to expect that as well. If we're reading the Gospel of Matthew for the very first time, and we're really familiar with this history, we're supposed to ask the question, oh, is is this book about how Jesus reestablished the political nation state of Israel? Instead, of a triumphant king through this gospel. Conquering Rome, creating a a new kingdom, we're given a suffering servant who dies on a Roman cross. That's what makes the, the end of the gospel so powerful. Jesus could have kicked out Rome and made Israel great again, but he doesn't. He dies. Jesus doesn't overthrow Caesar. He doesn't lead an army. He doesn't even try. He didn't come first to establish an earthly kingdom. Nevertheless, Jesus is a king. And through his death and through his resurrection, he establishes a heavenly kingdom. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus constantly refers to this kingdom. It's his main message. He says at the very beginning of his ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's not a worldly kingdom. Jesus would not be like other kings. This wasn't a kingdom of the world. Last week, we talked about the birth of Jesus. And we talked about the three wise men who brought him gifts. We learn that Jesus, through that, was proclaimed to be a king. He was given the honors of a king and recognized as such. But he was more than a king, we learned. He was a God king. And as we'll see going forward through this book, it's not that the disciples expected too much of Jesus when they taught that he would, or when they thought that he would establish his kingdom. It's not that they expected too much, it's that they expected too little. They were looking for a small, earthly kingdom. And what they got was much greater. Jesus proclaimed and established a heavenly kingdom. He established it, where all people are set under his rule. The throne of David was expanded to include everyone. And this kingdom has already been established. But in another sense... The kingdom has not fully come. It's already here. And it is yet to be. Already and not yet. Let me explain. The kingdom is here in the church of Jesus Christ. And what I mean by the church is this. The church is everyone throughout all time in every place who has been united to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. If you need a definition of what the church is, it is everyone throughout all time in every place who has been united to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the local church, this place, this is a visible 
representation of the kingdom of God right here, right now. In a very true sense, we are an embassy for the kingdom of God, and you are an ambassador for the kingdom of God. And the kingdom is still expanding. We don't conquer through violence like some other religions do. We expand through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through evangelism, through the message that has broken into the world by the Messiah. We continue that in-breaking. Last Sunday I said that calling Jesus king is a political statement. This is what I meant, and this is what I mean, because that's true. If you claim to belong to the kingdom of heaven... That necessarily means that every other political allegiance takes a back seat to your role as a citizen under Jesus the King. That's what I mean. We're not playing pretend. We actually are an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. We aren't speaking out of both sides of our mouth here. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. The kingdom of heaven has a real claim on your life as a citizen. The kingdom of heaven is distinct from and has priority over every other earthly country and allegiance, or at least it should. Whether or not that's true for you is up to you and the Lord. Now, there's nuance here, right? There's a good conversation to be had. Okay. It's good to be patriotic. It's good to love and to serve your country. The scriptures tell us to submit to the kings and emperors who rule over us, to pay taxes, etc., etc. And we're told that the government is an instrument of the Lord that he sets up. So we don't advocate for the overthrow of governments so we can set up some type of theocracy. Nevertheless, Jesus is king of kings. And I'd like to restate that's a political statement, not just a spiritual statement. We are consistently being confronted with a 24-hour news cycle that benefits from outrage and polarization and division. And unfortunately, that political polarization and division has seeped its little fingers into the church here in America and grabbed hold especially over the last several years. Many of you have felt it and seen it. It's very sad. And many people have been hurt in the church. Maybe you have been hurt by this in the church. So while government involvement, love of country, and a desire to have righteous politicians is good, and we should strive for that, our first and prior allegiance is to Jesus Christ and to his church. Amen? Amen? That's why it's a political statement. Calling Jesus king's king makes, means that we make the conscious decision to love each other and prioritize our relationship together in Christ because that's more important, even if it gets uncomfortable and we disagree on political things. And this is true whether you belong to one side of the aisle or not. We can have our thoughts and opinions in Christian freedom and love. Praise the Lord. But at the end of the day, we need to remember 
that American politics is secondary to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the unity of his church, which is an an embassy of the kingdom of heaven, a real embassy that you are an ambassador for. We should guard our mouths, guard our hearts, be careful what we say and careful what we do as ambassadors. What would it look like for you to lay your life at the feet of Jesus the King today? The kingdom is already here in the church of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. And it has a real claim on how we live and who you pledge your allegiance to. But in in another sense, the kingdom is not yet. Jesus promised that he would return. And when he does, he will establish an earthly kingdom. He will put an end to injustice, to sin, to sorrow, to death. He will make all things new and he will punish sin. He will be a king on earth, the only one. And that could happen tomorrow. And man, I hope it does. This has been the hope of the church for over 2,000 years. The throne of David, which is sat upon right now by Christ in heaven, will have a physical representation on earth once more. I want to bring your attention back to the text. Notice how Matthew ends his genealogy by counting those generations. It's kind of odd, right? If the purpose of the genealogy was just to list a bunch of names to convince us that Jesus came from these guys, he probably wouldn't include verse 17, but he does. In fact, he missed a couple kings. He missed a couple kings that we find in the Old Testament after David in order to make these numbers work. The number 14 is significant for Matthew, but he doesn't tell us why exactly. But all we have to do is look at the list again and see who the central figure is. It's David. In fact, the Hebrew letters that spell the name David add up to 14. Now, okay, you might say, Caleb, that sounds kind of crazy. Why are you getting into numerology? That's a bunch of hogwash. Let me clarify. At the time of the second temple, right, which is the time period we're dealing with, numerology, looking into numbers, and especially in the Hebrew text, was very common by rabbis at the time. Matthew would have been intimately familiar with this practice. Names were associated with numbers. Okay, so whenever you saw that number in the Old Testament, it was signifying or allegorizing something about that person. It was an interpretive approach. Are you with me? And so 14 was a well-known established number that represented David. Because the Hebrew letters, the three Hebrew letters that make up his name add up to 14 when they're assigned, like we assign A, B, and C, to numbers. Does that make sense? So he has David, 14, occur three times in the text. David, David, David. That's what it points to. So what does that tell us? Well, Matthew is less concerned with giving us a precise historical lineage of Jesus, like Luke does, than he is with telling us that Jesus comes from the line of David. This is the king. Jesus is the king. 
He is the one whose throne will be established forevermore. Now, this genealogy certainly represents a historical account of the royal line of David. Don't get me wrong. But the most important thing that we take away from this, I'll say it one more time, so you can't walk away without knowing what this message is all about. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. Joseph adopts the son of Mary as his own and brings him into the royal line of David. And through his death and resurrection, Jesus establishes his kingdom forever. It is happening right now. He ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God ruling over all things. And by his power, he holds all things together. And soon he will come back, bringing with him the kingdom of heaven onto earth. And we, we were taught to pray like that. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this kingdom is already here. And it has not yet come. It is established in the church, but not yet in the world. And that is to everyone's advantage who is still separated from Jesus. Because once his kingdom is here... Those who are outside of that kingdom will be outside forever. Or to say it another way, there will be those who bow at the feet of Jesus willingly and those who kneel before Jesus unwillingly. Which is it for you? The time is short. The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for texts of scripture like the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham and the son of David. Oftentimes overlooked, oftentimes neglected in our hearts and in our minds, Lord. But we thank you for what we can learn from it. Namely, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. That you fulfill all promises. That you bring all people to yourself. That all are welcome. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your goodness. That we can have access to your throne by Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins and who was risen for our justification. So Lord, we praise you. We thank you. We pray that we would be encouraged by this today. And if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would press upon them the importance of your gospel, of your death and your resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. That they can have that too by faith. We thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.